was happening a good wednesday to all of you thanks for joining me it is much appreciated as always the great power outage of 2023 is finally over apologies that we couldn't get anything done on the pod the last two days we lost power here in foxborough i'll have a feel-good story later for you likely go longer today on the pod because we haven't done one the last two days Plenty of Patriots to get to. Bill Belichick, Robert Kraft. Is Kraft actually sending signals that he's going to play hardball? But we start with the Celtics Warriors from last night. The Celtics could win 65 games. The Celtics are the most talented team in the NBA. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum have both improved since last year in many different ways. But watching last night's game against the Warriors was the inescapable bad movie that we've watched over and over and over again with this team, specifically with Tatum and Brown leading this Celtics team. It's like a bad movie. And last night's game is the perfect example of why people will watch this team, and I can't say they're wrong. While they'll watch this team as great as they are in the regular season, as great as they can be in the postseason, the great stretches we've seen from them, last night's game against the Warriors, that kind of game, that feel, is the reason why a lot of people will continue to watch the Celtics and say, talk to me in June. All that matters is winning a championship. Yeah, they look great here. They've closed out games there. But talk to me when this team is in the playoffs, finishing games consistently enough. Last night's game is the latest example of why people will continue to say that about this team. And don't give me Chris Stapp's Porzingis wasn't playing. The Celtics were up by 17 at one point. They started the fourth quarter up by 11. They were up by seven points with four minutes left. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum combined in the fourth quarter shot zero for six from the field. Inexcusable. Brown and Tatum combined were a minus 20 in the fourth quarter last night in the plus minus. You just can't have it. And we've seen it way too many times in big games. I'm not telling you that Tatum hasn't performed in a big game. He has. You go back a couple of years ago, Milwaukee, game six at the Bucks. That's a big time game, big time performance. Shout out. Seventh game against Philly last year. Same thing. Big time game, big time performance. Shout out. I'm not going to sit here and tell you those games haven't existed. They have. But what has gotten in the way of this team winning a championship for the last two or three years is what we saw last night. Tatum and Brown, fourth quarter, zero for six from the field, a minus 20. And let's look at Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum is a premier talent, MVP level kind of guy. And nobody's going to sit here, especially me, and tell you that Tatum is not good. I'm not even going to sit here and tell you that Tatum doesn't have the potential to be great because he does. We've seen it time and time again. But Jason Tatum has a fatal attraction. And that fatal attraction is the pull-up three. You look at the end of the first half last night, an atrocious pull-up three. Had no chance of making that shot. You look at the end of the fourth quarter before the overtime. What happened? A tightly contested, bad pull-up three from Tatum with about two seconds left on the shot clock. Tatum's fatal attraction, the pull-up three, continues to burn him and will continue to burn this team in big games at times over and over and over again. We've seen it. Again, it's like a bad movie. 
And I don't understand why Tatum continues to take these pull-up threes when he's not good at pull-up threes. And I've got the numbers to back it up. You ready for this? Jason Tatum has the fifth most pull-up threes per game in the NBA. The fifth most pull-up threes per game in the league. Tatum takes almost six pull-up threes a game at 5.8. 5.8 pull-up threes every single night from Tatum. That's tied for the fifth most in the league. Do you know how well Tatum shoots those pull-up threes? He shoots under 29%. So he takes the fifth most in the NBA, and he shoots under 29% on pull-up threes. It is his most inefficient shot, and he takes the fifth most in the league. Does that make any sense to you? Well, how do other guys shoot, Nick? When you look at guys who take pull-up threes, how many do they shoot and how well do they shoot? Luka Doncic is number one in the league. He shoots just over seven and a half pull-up threes a game. Do you know what he shoots pull-up three-wise? He shoots better than 38%. Again, Tatum, under 29%. Trey Young takes six and a half pull-up threes per game. Do you know what Trey Young shoots on pull-up threes? 38.5%. Jason Tatum, under 29%. You see a trend? Tyrese Halliburton is third in the league. He takes six and a half pull-up threes per game. Do you know what Tyrese Halliburton shoots on pull-up threes? He shoots almost 42% from three. Dame Dalla is tied with Tatum at 5.8 pull-up threes per game, and he's shooting more than 36% on those shots. So not only is Jason Tatum top five in taking pull-up threes per game in the league, when you look at the numbers, he's not even close. He's not even in the same universe as the guys who are taking those kinds of pull-up threes and the amount of those kinds of pull-up threes per game when it comes to efficiency. Luca, 38%. Trey, 38.5%. Halley, almost 42%. Steph, 38%. Dame Dalla, 36%. Jason Tatum, under 30%. That is an astronomical difference between Tatum and the rest of the guys. Jason Tatum shoots pull-up threes as much as Steph Curry. He makes them as much as Killian Hayes fact. That's a fact. He takes as many pull-up threes as Steph and makes as many as Killian freaking Hayes, but he continues to do it. Do all great players take these kinds of shots? The answer is no. Not if they're not good at those shots. Nikola Jokic, best player in the NBA. Do you know that Nikola Jokic, he shoots under 28% on pull-up threes? Again, Tatum is at 28.9%. Do you know how many pull-up threes Jokic takes per game? Less than one. Jokic looks at it and says, I'm inefficient with pull-up threes. And there are many players like this in the NBA. They look at it and they say, I'm inefficient from three when it's a pull-up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take less of those shots. Tatum takes the fifth most, even though he stinks at it. And this is a trend. You go back to 21-22, Tatum shot 38.8% on pull-up threes. Last season, he hovered at 29%, 29.2. Again, this year, he's under 29% again. This is not this is not a coincidence, folks. He's taking more pull-up threes the last two years. He's gotten significantly worse at those shots, but he continues to take them, being stubborn. Last season, last season, he shot clutch threes. Jason Tatum shot 
21.7% on clutch threes. You want to know why? That's why I brought up the end of half. That's why I brought up the end of the fourth quarter last night. Because a lot of those clutch threes last year that Tatum took were pull-ups. Because he's dribbling, dribbling, dribbling. They run offense through him. And he inevitably takes a bad pull-up three. And because of that, he misses. Just like last night, late in the fourth quarter. A chance to win that game. And instead of doing something different that he's much more efficient at, he takes a contested pull-up three. He misses. You go to overtime. You lose the game. Jason Tatum's fatal attraction with the pull-up three is hurting him. It's hurting this team. He was 5 of 17 last night, 2 of 9 from 3, because the vast majority are pull-up threes. He finished with 15 points. And you know what's truly irritating about it? And Tatum's very smart. He's a very smart basketball player, very smart guy. He knows the numbers. Trust me, he knows the numbers. The staff, they know the numbers. You know what is truly infuriating about Tatum taking these pull-up threes and missing them over and over and over again is that he is so good at the catch-and-shoot three. Tatum, catch-and-shoot. He's the best catch-and-shoot three-point shooter on the Celtics when it comes to percentage of shots made. Tatum, again, when you look at his pull-up threes, Tatum shoots under 29% on pull-up threes. Catch-and-shoot threes. Do you know what he shoots? He shoots over 45% on catch-and-shoot. I mean, I'm not a genius. I'm not a mathematician. I just talk into a microphone for a living. But even when I look at this, and you have a basketball player who shoots under 30% on pull-up threes, but 45% on catch-and-shoot threes, let me ask you a question. What type of three would you like Jason Tatum to take more? Pull-up threes or catch-and-shoot threes? Tatum takes almost six pull-up threes a game. Do you know how many, how many catch-and-shoot threes he takes? Less than half of that. He only takes 2.5 catch-and-shoot threes a game. Do you know what that ranks on the Celtics? Seventh. There are six Celtics, six Celtics that take more catch-and-shoot threes than Tatum, even though Tatum is the best catch-and-shoot from three on the team. And, and this is the difficult spot. And by the way, we'll have more on the Celtics before we turn to the Patriots and a few. Again, we're going to go long today. Don't forget, forget to give us that like if you like what we're talking about here. Give us that thumbs up. More thumbs up means more eyeballs. I can share this content with other people because I can guarantee you, I can guarantee freaking to you that I am the only guy today that is diving deep into these pull-up threes, catch-and-shoot threes, and telling you why the Celtics struggle offensively in these games late all the information i just gave you and it's free doesn't cost you a dime just give us that like that thumbs up throw in a comment i see many of you i'll get to your comments and don't forget to subscribe i understand it's a difficult spot for the celtics because you want to keep your best player happy and to keep tatum happy you run your offense through tatum but that's a problem that's a problem because his upside-down shot profile, because running offense through Tatum 
which you believe is a necessity to keep your best player happy, running offense through Tatum means that Tatum is going to take more pull-up threes because he's not working off of the ball. It is a vicious cycle that goes round and round, and it continues to hurt this team in some of the bigger moments. You run your offense through JT because you feel like you have to to keep the star happy, but the star continues to take pull-up threes when he knows he's not good at those shots but continues to take them as if he's going to wish them into the bucket and all of a sudden become one of the most proficient and efficient pull-up three shooters in basketball. It's a deadly combination. It's a deadly combination offensively. And don't talk to me about Jason Tatum's ankle. You know, I posted this last night. You can follow me at Nick C Radio right there, at Nick C Radio on Twitter slash X. I posted some of this last night about the pull-up threes. It's just, it's infuriating. And people were get, shooting back at me. A couple people that pushed back and said, oh, his ankle, his ankle, his ankle. Don't talk to me about his ankle, okay? Number one, he played 41 minutes. If you play 41 minutes, you're healthy enough to play. I'm not sitting here listening about the ankle. Number two, he took a late drive in overtime. And that ankle looked okay to me as he drove and went to the bucket. But number three, and most important, this is not in a vacuum. This is not a one-time incident. You can't just chalk this up to, oh, well, he wasn't healthy. This has been a problem for Tatum for the last two years. Boston Sports Inf, last night, Jason Tatum. Tie game, fourth quarter slash overtime. Five seconds or less remaining in the regular and postseason through his career. So tie game. Can't lose, but can win with a two or a three. Under those circumstances, Tatum is shooting from the floor 21%. From two, he's shooting 18%. From three, he's shooting 33%. Do you know what Tatum is when it's a tie game, fourth quarter, overtime, five seconds or less remaining, regular postseason career? Again, tie game, can't lose, can win with a two or a three. Jason Tatum in that situation is one for his last 10. This is not an isolated incident because of an ankle. This is who he has been. And this is one big part of the big issue with this team being incapable of closing games. They shot 58 threes last night, 29% from three. Chris Forsberg posted today that the tracking data suggests that 47 of Boston's 58 threes were open or better. The Celtics were 8 of 29, which is 27.6% on wide open threes. They have shot 41.2% on those shots this season. So, yes, there was some bad luck involved last night. They missed some wide open threes. Sam Hauser could not throw it in the ocean, and he was wide-ass open all night long. But I want to look at the second quarter, the quality of the three versus the stubbornness. The looks in the second quarter were good. The problem is they weren't making any of them. And at some point, you have to try to get something easy. You have to make it easier on yourself, make it easier on your team. And the way you do that is you touch the freaking paint. You post up, you dribble drive, you attack the bucket. The second quarter, it was three after three after three. And yes, many of those threes were good looks. But when you consistently miss those and you don't change your offense up to try to get something easier to stop the bleeding, it's the stop the bleeding moments. When you don't try to get something easier in those moments, your offense continues to fail and struggle. 
every once in a while, you've got to make it easier. And that's why the Warriors went on that big run in the second quarter. Because the Celtics just continuously, over and over and over again, took three after three after three, and not once stopped, took a deep breath and said, let's try to get something easy so we can actually get some offense going. That's why they went five minutes without scoring a freaking bucket. So don't talk to me about quality of threes. The devil's in the details. They got outscored 16 to 14 in the final 607 of the third quarter without Steph Curry on the floor. That was the end. The Celtics were minus two in the third quarter for over six minutes without Curry on the floor. That's the difference between walking into the fourth quarter with a 17 to 20 point lead and walking into the fourth quarter with an 11 point lead. And again, the team couldn't close. Same stuff, same bad movie. No pace. They slowed things down. The offense stagnated. Tatum got passive. They forgot to go downhill. They bailed on transition. They stopped running. All of the things that we've seen before. And that's why, as I started this, before we get to the Patriots, I said, this team is very good. They could win 65 games. They are one of, if not the most talented team in the NBA. But last night's game is why people will continue to doubt them until they actually put a banner up. Because we've seen the movie before. And no matter what they say, and no matter how many games during the regular season, they have seemingly solved the puzzle. We will always have some of these games to point to. And when we get to the postseason, we will always have moments like last night. And until those moments stop, or at least we see more consistency when it comes to closing out games and figuring out the offense and Tatum stop taking the pull-up threes for the love of God, until we see that, people, and I believe rightfully so, are going to continue to doubt the capability of this team closing out a championship series. Whether you like it or not, that's the way it's going to go. Because it's the same ish we see, and it's the same frustration. And yes, they missed open shots, they missed layups, but because of the way you approach this game, because the way you approach the second quarter, because the way you approached the time without Curry on the floor in the third quarter, because the way you approached your offense in the fourth quarter, those missed layups and missed shots, open shots, became crucial to the game story. If you played the right way, you took care of business, we wouldn't have to be worried about those missed layups and missed shots. Pat Almeida jumps in, says, even if they do solve the puzzle, Steph owns that ass. Yes, Steph owns a lot of tuckuses in the league. A lot of tuckuses. Talking about Missoula here, Michael Garris, and I hear a lot of Celtics fans busting Missoula's chops. Do you think it's a player problem or a coaching issue? Uh, both. Both. Again, it's it's incumbent on the player to understand the situation. Tatum and Brown are two of the most talented players in the league. They've been in the league for six or seven years. It's time that they understand what the hell is going on. But it's also Missoula who just allows Tatum to continue to take these pull-up threes. It's also on Missoula for not calling more offensive sets when they're in these struggles, he just continues to let things fly and just let it be. So I, th I think it's actually both. T-Man says, glad you're back, Nick. Missed the show. I missed all of you. It was brutal to not do this show for two days. Brutal. 
Absolutely freaking brutal. Cisco jumps in. As a Laker fan, I think you're spot on. Also, they miss Marcus Smart. They lack physicality. There's, there's some of that lack of physicality, which is why I want them to go out and find a four or five. I know the Isaiah Stewart stuff came out recently. I wouldn't mind that at all. ERC-20, great point. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. Or woman. He also uh, swore here, which I, I won't share. We try to keep it clean, YouTube algorithm and all. All right, let's jump to the Patriots. Tons of reporters telling us that uh, Bill Belichick is expected to be out when this season ends. That's not a surprise. There was a Tom Curran, Ian Rappaport back and forth a little bit, a little bit of a tit for tat with those guys on their reports. We talked about Curran's report about Belichick and how a decision was made uh, after the Germany game. I, I don't understand the semantics games that are being played. You know, was a decision made? A decision wasn't final. It wasn't firm. It's soft. It's a soft decision. It's a firm decision. What the hell are we doing? Talking mattresses? Or are we talking about decisions made by Robert Kraft? A firm decision? A soft decision? A kind of decision? Was it a sleep number? Was it a Tempur-Pedic? <laughs> I, I, I didn't get any of that. I, I, I didn't get any of it. In Rappaport's, you know, report, which is always funky to say, it, it really didn't tell me much either, but there was one aspect of Rappaport's story over the weekend that jumped out at me, and I'm not so sure that a lot of people paid attention to this one specific aspect of the story, which is why I want to talk about it today. Rappaport wrote at NFL.com, nothing decided yet as far as Belichick's future. And then he wrote, expect a period of evaluation when the regular season ends with no immediate conclusion on Belichick coming or going. All right, so the period of evaluation is what I want to pay attention to. When I read that, I thought right away that meant Robert Kraft wants compensation. Because why else would you wait? How long of a period of evaluation do you need? If this team ends up at 3-14, and 14, how long do you sit around and wait to make this call? If this team finishes where we think it's going to finish, unless they run three games back-to-back-to-back, the rest of this season, which many of us don't see that happening. They they win three games, four games, five games. What do you need to do as far as the evaluation? I would think that you, you either know that you're going to keep Belichick because if you're keeping Belichick, even though he wins five games, you've got to be really, really sure about that. It can't be a situation that Belichick talks you into believing that he's going to be better in 2024. Like You have to have conviction. You have to have commitment to this decision if you're Robert Kraft. You have to know whether or not you're in or out on, on Belichick at this point. Nothing over the next three weeks should change your mind as far as what you want to do with this franchise. It should be cut and dry. It should be Belichick's out or he's not out based on what's happened post-Tom Brady. So the only thing that makes sense to me why you had a, would have a period of evaluation if you're Kraft is if you're playing hardball. And that's what I'm asking. Is Robert Kraft already playing hardball? Is that why the Ian Rappaport report was, was framed the way it was? Is this Robert Kraft's signal to Belichick? I can wait on you. It's going to take me a little bit of time. Now, why would Kraft do that? I would say the clock. The clock could be Kraft's best leverage in this situation. I'll set up a scenario for you. What happens if Robert Kraft says, Bill, you're under contract. This is what I want to happen. 
but you're under contract. So I don't have to make a decision right now. I can wait until February. I can wait until March if I want to be egregious. And even if Kraft is not telling Belichick the truth in that moment, maybe he's bluffing. Maybe he's playing the old game of poker. But if you're Robert Kraft, you could use that as a tool against Belichick. Hey, Bill, you want to leave? You want to go elsewhere? Well, guess what? We're going to sit on your contract until those other openings dry up, until the Chargers hire somebody, until the Commanders hire somebody. We know all the teams by now. I think that is the best leverage that Kraft has. You are under contract. You cannot go coach or do anything with another team until we allow you to do that. And if if you want to play hardball, we're going to play hardball. We're going to sit on that contract for as long as we can. And as a matter of fact, if, if the succession plan is Gerard Mayo, doesn't that make it much easier for Kraft to sit on the contract and make it tough for Bill until Bill acquiesces and talks to the team? Say if it's the Chargers, Bill goes to the Chargers and says, look, we got to start this thing. The calendar is the calendar. Free agency is going to happen. The draft is going to happen. And Kraft is sitting on my contract. If you want me in L.A. and I want to be in L.A., we've got to get a deal done right now. That's the avenue to get a trade done and to get an asset for Belichick, to make it uncomfortable on Belichick. And I think the only way you do that is you push this and you say, we're going to sit and we're going to wait this thing out. I I think that's the best leverage. And if you have Mayo as the succession plan, you don't necessarily need to go to Mayo in January. Yes, Mayo might interview for other jobs, but Mayo and Kraft could certainly have a conversation. And Mayo could certainly understand that this is all part of the game. Now, where it gets tough is the GM, and that's Belichick's leverage. Oh, you want to sit on my contract? Well, you don't have a GM. And then you go back to the contract, the game that we play, does Kraft have something in that contract that allows him to pull the personnel power from Belichick? Because if he can, if he can pull the personnel power from Belichick but still keep him under contract, then that's a very tough spot for Belichick. More thoughts on this in a minute. Like us on YouTube. If you like the Patriots talk, let's drive those numbers up. Took two days off. We're heading into the holiday. This is a very tough week. One man band trying to make this thing happen on this podcast. Give us that like, comment, subscribe on YouTube if you're watching and listening there. And also don't forget Spotify, Apple Pods. I love all of you as well. Don't forget to rate and review. Would an evaluation period be for craft? to gauge Belichick's thoughts as being head coach without being the GM. That's another possibility. Maybe the period of evaluation is for Kraft to approach Belichick and say, Bill, I still think you can coach. Whether or not you and I would want that, that's besides the point. We're just talking from Kraft's point of view. Would this open the door for Kraft to approach Belichick and say, I don't have an issue with you coaching the final year of your contract I don't have an issue with that, but Bill, we can't have you run personnel. And is that the period of evaluation? Because what's interesting about all of this is what Burt Breer said on the pregame, NBC Sports Boston on Sunday. He said teams aren't necessarily thinking that Bill will have full power slash autonomy. He said while teams have been doing their due diligence on Belichick, they've come to the conclusion that there would need to be checks and balances. That means there's more leverage for Kraft. Because if Belichick doesn't necessarily have the option of going to another team to run the entire ship, 
than Kraft's offer of, hey, Bill, stay here as the coach, but somebody else is going to run personnel. That offer to Belichick might be much more sexy under those circumstances because Belichick might look at it and say, shoot, no matter where I go, I'm just going to be a head coach. I don't have that offer to do both. I don't have that offer of full power. And because I don't have that offer of full power, then I'm more open to staying here in New England where I'm comfortable, where I've built a legacy, and I'll coach 2024 and then see what happens if I can revive this thing. It's best for everyone to make a quick decision. Each side has to get things situated. That's what I think. That's my personal opinion. If you're going to say goodbye to Belichick, rip the Band-Aid off, hopefully you can get a trade done and bring an asset back. But you need at least your GM. And again, if we want to build this perfectly, if you're Robert Kraft, if you want to build it perfectly, you want everything aligned. Head coach, GM, front office, get that all ready for a very crucial offseason. So I don't think you have the time to play the game of poker. I wonder if Kraft is trying to do that. Uh, by the way, thanks to Pete Pretorius for the $5 Super Thanks donation. Uh, if you like what we do here, you can always donate to us via Super Thanks on YouTube. I appreciate it. Again, I don't make a dime off this stuff outside of the ads that roll every once in a while on YouTube and Spotify. That's why those exist, because I don't want to ask you uh, for money out of your own pocket. If you want to donate via a super thanks, we always appreciate it. I can't thank those who have donated their hard-earned money enough you know, to this show, even if it's 5 bucks, 20 bucks. We had a $50 donation. Can't thank you enough. I don't want to panhandle here. I don't want to turn this into, you know, some kind of, 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 you know, telecast where we're trying to, you know, ask for your dollars, but just letting you know, Pete Pretorius, thank you for the $5 super thanks. All right. Speaking of Belichick, Belichick, I just wanted to touch on this from Sunday. And I know Sunday is mostly old news. I get it, but I wanted to underline, highlight, make sure that we discuss Belichick coaching to not be humiliated against the chiefs on Sunday. And that's precisely what happened. That's what we saw. The fourth and three at your 42-yard line in the fourth quarter down 17 points, three possessions with under 15 minutes left. You decide to punt. That is a decision to not be humiliated. The fourth and four at the New England 33-yard line down 17 points, same score. You know, three, five, no, five and a half minutes later, and you punt again. You don't have enough possessions. There weren't enough possessions. You know, you're you're in scoring position in three of your prior eight drives. You have not been moving the football consistently enough. And, you know, Mahomes is on the other side of the field. Remember fourth and two when Belichick's thought was, hey, we're going to go for it here because we can't give the ball back to, to Peyton Manning? Well, there we are again. But he decided differently on Sunday. He gave the ball back to Patrick Mahomes multiple times when the Chiefs were up by three possessions, three scores in the fourth quarter. That is coaching to not be blown out. That's what that is. Being down 10 and you, and you don't go no huddle. You have a slug pace. Are, are you even trying to win? I mean, Ezekiel Elliott said in the locker room that he thought the team should have moved quicker. So even the players noticed that. You went for it on fourth and one earlier in the game, and Hunter Henry gets a touchdown. But in the fourth quarter, fourth and short, fourth and medium, twice, down three possessions, you decide to punt the football. And I do wonder, 
I do wonder, do you think the Patriots would have gone for it on that fourth and one when Henry got the touchdown? Do you think Belichick makes that decision if Chad Ryland doesn't miss that 41-yard field goal attempt by a mile prior to that? I don't. I think Belichick, that was more of an indictment on Ryland than Belichick being super uber aggressive. That's how I read it. He didn't trust his kicker, so we went for it. And I've heard some wondering, you know, why did Belichick tap out? Are the Patriots tanking? Has Belichick lost it? It is none of those things, folks. It is His decision-making on Sunday doesn't have to do with him losing his fastball. It doesn't have to do with the Patriots tanking. It doesn't have to do with Belichick tapping out. It has nothing to do with that. This is who Bill Belichick has been since 2012. If you don't believe me, go back to a podcast that we did a couple of months ago when we went through this. Belichick's fourth quarter decision-making, his fourth down decision-making, his decision-making in tight game, those things have told us for more than a decade that Bill Belichick is incredibly conservative. He was conservative when he had Tom Brady on the team. You think he's going to be even more conservative when he's got Bailey Zappi and a broken Mac Jones? So it's not because he's tapping out. It's not because this team has three wins. It's not because he forgot how to coach football. It's because this is who Belichick has been since 2012. That's what it is. It's simple. Why do we have to try to, you know, read so much into it? These decisions. become even more of a thing to all of us because the team has three wins. But Belichick has coached this way, no matter if they're getting to the playoffs, no matter if they're winning freaking Super Bowls or winning three games. For 11 years, this guy has coached scared. Again, go listen to the podcast that we did a couple of months ago. I line it all out for you. It's a defensive conservative approach, and it falls in line with its team's offense being trash and just the way they approach the entire operation. Bill Belichick loves winning games 20 to 13, no matter if he wants to say it or not. That's what his approach tells us. The personnel side of the offense, the handling of the quarterbacks, the fourth down decisions, the fourth quarter decisions, all of those things tell us that Belichick loves winning his way. And this year, he has not been able to do that. It's come home to roost. And and we can talk about, I know Belichick, which was I thought was brutal, came out and said, oh, well, he implied that they went conservative late in the game because there were injuries. Give me a break. They did the same thing against Pittsburgh in the second half. They went super conservative. It's the same thing he's done since 2012 even when the team's been healthy, even when the team's had to go at quarterback. It's just who he is. It's what they do. Pat Almeida jumps in and says, you're right. Bill has coached cowardly for years, and nobody cared because they won. Yes. Just like his post-game press conferences, just not just like taking zero responsibility or accountability for some of the decisions and some of the mistakes they've made. When you win, you're allowed the grace period. Because you could always say we're doing what's best for the football team and no one's going to argue because you're winning championships. But when 
you've gone, what is it, 30 and 40, 31 and 41, whatever it is, since Thanksgiving of 2019, when you're coaching a three-win team, that stuff matters more because that's in the moment. We find out about somebody when they're struggling. We don't find out about somebody's you know, comfort level or, or, or somebody's attrition level. We find out about somebody who they truly are when they're going through difficult times. The best times are the best times. They're easy to handle. Oh, we do what's best for the football team. Okay, they won 14 games. They won a Super Bowl. Sounds good to me. 3-11, and 11, seemingly having no idea how to handle the quarterback position, being questioned about it, and giving us it's what we do best for the football team. That's not going to work. Christopher jumps in. What's up, Nick? Merry Christmas from your homies in Virginia Beach. Love Virginia Beach. Love Virginia Beach. Another story that bothered the crap out of me as we start to somewhat wind down here. I, I do have one more Patriots thing, and then I have a good vibe story for you this holiday season. Demario Douglas has had two concussions this year. He was medically cleared to play on Sunday against the Chiefs. He played. He told Mass Live that it was his decision to play, and I hate that. First, I respect Pop for wanting to play. It is the sixth-round mentality, right? He doesn't want to be Wally pipped. So it's it's just that, that chip on his shoulder. And again, I appreciate that, and I want a guy to play. I want Pop Douglas to want to play on Sunday. But playing on Sunday should not have been Pop Douglas's decision. When we're talking about multiple concussions, when we're talking about significant injuries, the team and the head coach should make the decision. You want to know why? Because the vast majority of professional athletes will want to play. You have to take that decision from them. It's the reason why when somebody got their quote-unquote bell rung back in the late 90s, they'd be able to just run back out there and the coach wouldn't think about it because players play. That's what they do what they want to do you cannot allow pop douglas to make that decision because you know he's going to want to play even if he's medically cleared even if he's medically cleared he should not be the one making that decision now i'm glad apparently the team went to pop and asked him and tried to get him to sit because at least they were thinking about his future and the team's future but even if you're questioning it it means you should sit him, right? So I, I just, I, and it's not a Patriots thing. It's not a, it, it's an all sports thing. When a player is injured, when a player is dealing with stuff like Pop was dealing with two concussions in the same season, I've always said at a certain point, it's up to the team to sit that player down, even if they're medically cleared and to show a little bit of caution. The Miami Dolphins kept throwing Tua out there after getting cleared with concussions because he wanted to play, and they're fortunate it didn't backfire on them and end the guy's career. So I hate the fact that Pop Douglas was allowed to make that decision because it should not be his decision to make. It just shouldn't be. A couple of uh, things that I see. James jumps in and says, uh, sorry, late to the party. Hope all, all is well and safe with you. I'll, I'll get to the uh, my night last night with a quick Good vibe story for all of you before we say goodbye. Uh, James Kenny jumped in. He's had a lot to say. Look at this thing. Same old story about the Celtics. Look like playground basketball. Last two years, too many three-point attempts. Percentages, success are terrible. Yeah, I mean, James, I don't know if you were here at the beginning of this puppy, but we went through it for a good 15, 20 minutes. 
and uh, the the fatal attraction that Jason Tatum has with pull-up threes. All right, quick fun story to close this out for you. So we lost power for two days. Uh, we I woke up on Monday, about quarter of nine, power goes out, right? So this continued to be the case. Yesterday, I, I went to my in-laws to shower and shave. That's always fun, very awkward, but we did it because the body needs to be washed. <laughs> so I went to the in-laws, took the party, all that stuff. And my goodness, before I go on, Pat Almeida jumps in. Merry Christmas, Nick. Thanks for all the shows. A $50 super thanks, Pat. I can't say enough about that, man. I hope you have a great holiday. I hope your family has a fantastic holiday. And uh, that means the world to me. Again, that even if it's $5, whatever it is, to uh, to spend that hard-earned money on, on this show means the world to me. I can't thank you enough, Pat, for that $50 super thanks. Man, I appreciate you and happy holidays. So I spend the uh, I spend yesterday for a couple hours at the in-laws, take the shower, shave, get all that stuff done, come back home. Uh, initially, National Grid says that we're going to be out of power until quarter of midnight. We have to come to the decision of, all right, do we stay home or do we go to a hotel because we have no heat? So then we get the update from National Grid saying that we would not have power until today at noon. So at that point, we decide to go to the hotel. So we decide to pay about 250 bucks for a hotel dog fees. Urgh. So we, we pack the dog up, we pack some stuff up, we make our way to the hotel, we, we trudge our way to the hotel room, we check in, we, we, we got into the room, I unpack a bunch of stuff, and right then and there, literally as we sit down in the room, Kelly, my wife, gets a text, and Kelly says, you're not going to believe this, and I knew what it was. Oh, did I know what it was with all the loins? And Kelly looks at me and she says, just got a text that said we got power back. So here we are. Good news, we got power back. Bad news, we just paid 250 bucks for a hotel room that we literally were in for like 10 minutes. So Kelly goes downstairs and they tell us that as long as we don't touch the bed and as long as we don't touch the bathroom, they will void. They will void the night. They will refund us the money and we can leave. Shout out, by the way, to the residents in, in Foxborough who did this for us. So I had already, being a germaphobe, Lysoled the room and washed my hands. But uh, she ends, Kelly ends up coming back. And because I'm honest to a fault, before we leave the hotel room, uh, I said to the front desk, coordinator, operator, whatever her title is, lovely lady, said, I know that you're going to allow us to leave and that you're going to void uh, the stay and, and give us the money back. And I just want to let you know, I know we weren't supposed to go into the bathroom, but I did Lysol wipe the room and I did use the soap to wash my hands, which was the most ridiculous, most ridiculous part of the night. Me feeling guilty, telling the front desk coordinator that I Lysol wiped the room and washed my hands just out of guilt. But the stay was voided. We got the refund back. We have power back, the pods back. I appreciate every single one of you. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Nick Cattle Show Sharp. We go live on YouTube. Don't forget, we'll talk Patriots and everything else that happens. Until then, till that Thursday, uh, be very, very well. And again, thanks to Pat for that super thanks. I appreciate you.